This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... The governments didn't know much. The scientists didn't know much. So, so how, how could we? Journalists are not, most of them are not medical experts. So all they can do is transfer the information from one source to the other, but they can't make a judgment. Governments or experts do change opinion over time. How did they change their opinion? Is it based on evidence or is it based on pressure? So welcome to this edition of Inside Geneva, our topic today. Coronavirus cases continue to rise rapidly, driven by the new variant of the virus. Die Weltgesundheitsorganisation WHO schätzt die Entwicklung der Corona-Epidemie in Europa derzeit als alarmierend. On the front line of a major London hospital today, after a big increase in admissions of COVID patients. I'm afraid so, yet again. It is one year since we first became aware of the COVID-19 virus. Um, What some of you who listen to Inside Geneva may not know, though, is that, as we said, this is a Swiss Info production, we have a whole team of journalists working in Geneva who've been across this topic for the whole year. And I thought it'd be really nice to invite them on today. So as well as our regular analyst, uh, Daniel Warner, we have Jessica Plus-Davis and Julia Crawford. And they are going to be talking with me and Danny over the course of this half hour, what we knew then, what we know now, do we actually know anymore? And are we behaving as responsible journalists in what is a really challenging situation? So without further ado, I'm going to start with you, Julia, because I can remember just almost exactly a year ago doing a live radio report and the presenter over in London saying to me, well, how infectious is it and how exactly does it spread and how serious are the consequences? And I had to say, I don't know, which is the hardest thing sometimes for a journalist. We're used to having the facts and being able to say, I'm at the scene and this is what I know. Can we start then with you, Julia? How have you found it reporting this particular issue over the course of this year? Well, as you say, Imogen, it's a year ago that we were watching what was happening in Wuhan, in China, with that very, very strict lockdown on the first cluster. And I think we all knew it was serious, but I wonder how many of us really realised how fast it was going to spread. I certainly didn't. I think one of the things that struck me was the speed and the unprecedented nature of the way things happened. And as you say, we knew nothing about the virus because it was a new virus. As journalists, we have a responsibility to report responsibly, also to play a kind of public information role. But, you know, the governments didn't know much. The scientists didn't know much. 
So, so how how could we? And the discussions kept changing as well. It's like, you know, where did it come from? How does it spread? Maybe it spreads like this, but maybe it also spreads like this. Then there was the whole discussion around masks. Now the main issue is vaccines. So, I mean, it was extremely challenging and, as I say, completely unprecedented. We weren't prepared, but nobody was. What about you, Jessica? Can I bring you in there? I mean, I think Julius actually hits the, hits the, the nail on the head. We weren't prepared, but in fact, nobody was. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree that, um, you know, if you look back to that time, there are a couple of kind of key moments that I really remember. And one was working on a news shift here. And when the cases went from one to 10, and all of a sudden they were 20, and all of a sudden you realized you had to completely change the way you approach your reporting, that we are not reporting individual cases anymore. I mean, in the same way, every little case in this canton, in this city, in this town, and all of a sudden it, it, it looked different and that kind of adjustment is constant and has been happening over the course of the entire year. Um, and we're learning at the same time. And I think it's been a challenge to always, you know, kind of balance that messy reality with trying to help people make, you know, be informed, make informed decisions for their own personal health, for public health. And I think that's been, yeah, been, been a journey for, for reporters, but um, we have to be honest about what we've, what we learn and what we also don't know still to this day. Danny, what do you think? Because I think sometimes people, you know, journalists don't get a good press, if you like nowadays oh it's fake news and now we spent a good part of, of of the last few months saying well we don't actually know yet i mean how, how is your faith in the the media these days particularly on this topic well what i find fascinating is that the news business information flow was in danger newspapers were going down and all of a sudden there's this huge thirst people want to know so all of a sudden, journalists become important, but they have difficulty reporting because they don't know what to report and who to believe. Uh, so in a sense, there's big business now and a desire by the public, but you're not sure how to answer. And my last point, which I think is interesting, is that there are other stories out there that you may want to report on, but this is the story that everyone wants to hear about. That's an interesting point, actually. I mean, have have you had, you, Julia and Jessica, have you had to neglect other things because of this? I mean, I certainly have. Um, certainly when I was working on news shifts, I gave it top priority. You know, so forget the nice animal stories. Um, if there's a COVID story that's important, then obviously you have to cover it and you have to try and cover it as best you can. I would say yes, also um, with regard to International Geneva, I personally have been focusing very much on the response of the World Health Organization, um, which uh, has been really in the eye of the storm, but can also play a, a very key role. Maybe just to add on to that, yeah, it's just, um, I have to admit, I, I think there are stories that have gotten lost in in COVID, um, but the stories have also changed in some way. Um, 
And I think I was actually at the World Economic Forum in Davos in, in January of last year, and I got just a host of interviews, great, great material that I couldn't wait to use in stories. And all of a sudden I got back and COVID, COVID, nonstop COVID. And I tried to use some of them, but then I realized I write a lot about business. I write about multinational companies. And although they still had those issues that I had talked about in Davos, they were intertwined with COVID in some way. And so I had to then think about, there was always this element of COVID in, in the story, you know, whether it was an operation, a mine that was shutting down and now it was affected by the community being upset or they had to be tested. You know, were you going to test your employees? Were you going to introduce a home office policy? These kinds of things were all intertwined in the other stories about business. There's one story in particular that um, I really wanted to do more on and I was able to link with COVID and that was about antibiotics and the antibiotics crisis. And I think that was exacerbated um, in some way by COVID, but people actually didn't really want to hear about antibiotics. They wanted to hear about COVID therapies, COVID vaccines and things. And so I think it's, um, yeah, it's been a kind of balancing act to, to figure out how, how all of this fits together and doesn't fit together. I was also interested digging a little deeper what we were talking about, about um, we're kind of in unknown territory. We don't have all the answers. What do we do? This has happened to me a number of times this year where you get different answers to the same question from different groups. And who do we trust? Now, I know we can perhaps safely say that some of the COVID doesn't exist stuff we can dismiss. But for example, very recently, there has been debate and contradiction from very reputable quarters about how the vaccine booster, for example, works. We'll come on to vaccines more specifically in a moment. But what I'm interested in is when we have a government of one country, its scientists of the same country, plus perhaps its own institutional vaccine advisory service, all saying different things, what do we do? I mean, that's the question of moral authority. I find it fascinating in the United States that Dr. Fauci has become this icon. And whatever Fauci says, most of the people believe it. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think the World Health Organization has gotten to that position. And I see even in Geneva that there are certain health workers who've said careful about the vaccine. So the question of confidence and moral authority is important. And I think there the WHO, the World Health Organization, has not been able to set itself up as the authority on the pandemic. Maybe I could come in there. I was going to say, I mean, like the WHO, its credibility has been attacked, obviously, particularly by the Trump administration. But yeah, you're talking about that moral authority, Danny. And on this thing of dosage, I mean, I was kind of a bit shocked, I suppose, to hear that uh, Boris Johnson in the UK has decided that a solution to not having enough vaccines at the moment is to just give one dose. And who has clearly said that that is not the way? The manufacturers have said that their tests for safety and efficacy are based on the two doses three weeks apart or about three weeks apart. So it's like some governments or some people anyway just are not taking what the WHO is saying seriously. 
Well, I said we would get onto the vaccine later, but we're actually on it now, so we might as well um, keep on talking about it. Doubts already. Let's spool back uh, just a few weeks. And we have some breaking news for you this morning, because in the last few minutes, we've heard that the first coronavirus vaccine has been approved for use by the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. Schneller zugelassen als erwartet, SwissMedic gibt grünes Licht für den ersten Covid-19-Impfstoff. Euphoric headlines, vaccine approved, it's our saviour, despite the fact that almost every government leader, even the supposedly populist ones, have actually said it won't be a fast process. Now, as you were saying, Julia, there are question marks about it. Here in Switzerland, we had the federal vaccine body saying we will only use it based on the tests that were done in these three phases of vaccine testing. That's how we licensed it. We won't extend the booster shot for 12 weeks, which is kind of what the UK was proposing. Today, apparently, the, um, the Swiss Science Task Force said, oh, no, we could extend it to 12 weeks. I'm waiting, perhaps by the time this program is on the air, we'll have some clarity about who actually wins that one. But this is exactly my point. Which of those two very reputable bodies are we going to report? Are we going to say both? And is that responsible? How is the general public going to feel after a year of this? Well, I would also add that journalists are not, most of them are not medical experts. So all they can do is transfer the information from one source to the other, but they can't make a judgment. And I think that's a problem in questions and answers to authority that most of the journalists, almost all of them, are not doctors. Jessica, I think you wanted to come in there. I mean, it is our responsibility, though, isn't it, to at least understand and be able to evaluate statistics? Yeah, I mean, I think my perspective is as much as we can take the politics out of the the data and the science, the politics and the incentives, really understanding who, who has an incentive to report such things, this information, and be advocating a certain policy. But it has been confusing. I mean, as Julia pointed out with masks, you know, we said masks don't protect us. They do protect us. Then we have the same thing about the dosage. And some of this, we have to say, we are learning along the way. And so some of this, it is possible that governments or experts do change opinion over time. And we have to acknowledge how did they change their opinion? Is it based on evidence or is it based on pressure? peer pressure, social pressure, science, you know, where where is this these pressure points coming from and understanding, you know, why they might have changed their opinion and why it makes sense in some way. Um, but I think it again, I think the the vaccine issue is difficult. I mean, I've mentioned to you, Imogen, that one of the things that worries me is the liability being taken off of companies who conducted the clinical trials. They've said this is the way we recommend it. And now governments, when they start going another route, we have to question then our governments saying, you know what, we're going to go this route and we're going to ignore the the science. And then, you know, the companies kind of are lifted off of this in some way. There's a lot of complicating factors in this um, and a lot of pressure for governments to really roll out these vaccines quickly. Danny, you got your hand up there. Yeah, Jessica and Julia, I was wondering how much, how critical can you be when you're raising questions? I mean, I would say that, you know, we don't want to be divisive or unnecessarily provocative. I mean, especially when the nation is in crisis, the world is in crisis. 
But on the other hand, if we're talking to government people, they're supposed to be running the country. They've been elected to run the country. And our duty is to challenge them as much as we can to get the information that we think our public needs. Oh, I think that's absolutely crucial, isn't it? I mean, we saw, I think we would say that the uh, US press did a very good job of holding President Trump to account when he came out with, I'm taking hydroxychloroquine, which of course was proven not to do any good at all, that that is, is key. But again, we're, are we in this fine line of, do we always look for the negative? Are we, all, are we trying too hard to find fault? I mean, government's the same as the rest of us are in a very, a very new situation. Jessica? Hmm. Difficult question. I mean, I think, yeah, by nature as journalists, I mean, we, I'd say journalists as well as scientists, our, our job in some way is to ask questions, um, tough questions, to be critical of statements. But overall, there is a lack of transparency. And in some way, the transparency or the lack thereof, um, maybe for good reason, to not um, convey too much uncertainty in a time where everyone is already feeling so uncertain and afraid. But the lack of transparency also makes it very difficult because we don't really know what the government knows and doesn't know and what they know but are just not telling people. Can you, can you give us a, a concrete example of that? Of what, where, where precisely do you think there's a lack of transparency as opposed to statistics that the government also doesn't have? Testing. To me, testing was one example I remember over the period of time where some governments were really saying test, test, test all the time. And the Swiss were quite often saying only test with symptoms. And then you find out there's a huge shortage of testing equipment. And then you're wondering, could they have said that the testing equipment, it's because of the testing equipment, or is it actually a good strategy to only test symptomatic people? So I think those were the kinds of things that came up over you know, the course of the last few months that you've been asking yourself, is there a reason we're not getting the full picture about testing? Is, is there a reason they're advocating for this approach? And so it's important to ask those tough questions. Is it because of the lack of supplies or equipment, or is it actually an appropriate strategy and, and you know, try to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I mean, I suspect the advice on masks was also based on similar shortages to begin with. Danny, I can see you waving your hand over there. Well, I wanted to compliment uh, Jessica because I think there are questions about the business angle here and who's making money. I mean, at a time when people are worried about their health, do we really want to hear about money being thrown away? Uh, and how much this is costing. But I think you've done, and other people are doing a good job keeping that on the radar screen, whereas people just want to hear, you know, is this under control or not? So I think that's slightly off the radar, but important to keep on the radar screen. It's interesting. We've talked a lot, and it's natural, about the country we're in, because as well as being journalists and commentators, we have also lived in our own personal lives the, the last uh, 12 months as well, watched what's going on, had our own questions, not always got the answers. But to broaden it out, and Julia, I particularly want to discuss this with you, we've got the World Health Organization. Danny mentioned a little earlier that it perhaps hadn't got the moral authority it would need in a crisis like this. And one of the things, uh, criticism, okay, it originally came from President Trump, and we don't always take what he says that seriously. But this has stuck. 
that the WHO and Dr. Tedros in particular is too close to China. Now, just this week, it appears that yet again, the WHO mission to China to look at the origins of the virus has been delayed for some bureaucratic lack of visas reason coming from Beijing. For the very first time, I saw Dr. Tedros actually look angry at Beijing. Here's what he had to say. Over the past 24 hours, members of the international scientific team on COVID-19 virus origins began traveling from their home countries to China. Today, we learned that Chinese officials have not yet finalized the necessary permissions for the team's arrival in China. I'm very disappointed with this news, given that two members had already begun their journeys and others were not able to travel at the last minute. So, Julia, you have done a lot of coverage of the WHO. What's your feeling there? Is it, I mean, many people are saying it's not fit for purpose, it needs more reform. Do, do you give it any good marks for how it's handled this? It's true. I mean, as we said before, the WHO has been attacked, not just by Trump, but I'm sure other governments have also been calling for reform, quite happy to let Trump go ahead and bash the WHO so they don't have to do it directly. Reforms may be needed. There's also a big funding issue. On the other hand, the WHO has, in an unprecedented situation, come up with some fairly unprecedented initiatives, including, for example, the COVAX initiative, which is a really quite groundbreaking initiative for a vaccine pool. And it's really like the only show on the road that's trying to make sure that developing countries don't get left out in the vaccine race. By the end of September, they announced that uh, really a lot of countries had signed up, more continued to sign up, including Switzerland. And there are now, I think, 180 countries on board. If you include both the funding countries, which are the richer countries, and the developing countries, which will have access to vaccines from this pool. Um, its first funding target was met. It was an emergency target in um, 2020 of $2 billion, if I'm not uh, mistaken. But it's calling for quite a lot more money for more procurement, for rollout, for the R&D portion. So, you know, it depends whether the richer countries are, are willing to maintain that funding support and it depends on a lot of things. Will it work or not? Well, we don't know, but it's a great initiative. Jessica, you've been looking quite closely, as you said, at the, the corporate side of this, the role of the pharma companies. I've heard that, that some of them are very committed to the COVAX thing, although you would think business-wise, shareholder-wise, it might not be the most profitable route. What, what's your take? What have the pharma has been telling you? Well, I think first, back in February, I spoke with the head of the Drugs for Neglected Diseases, um, the head of the, that organization, and he reminded me that a lot of companies have moved out of infectious diseases because it's just not profitable. They've moved into oncology, and I think that's 
particularly why actually many of the big Swiss pharma companies didn't have such a role in vaccines, therapies for COVID. Um, I mean, Roche has been involved in diagnostics and testing, and Novartis has looked at some of their current drugs. Um, but vaccine development is really not a very profitable. It costs a lot. There's a lot of safety concerns you're testing on healthy people. Um, and ultimately, they have to be affordable for everyone. If you know, a huge portion of the population cannot be vaccinated. It just can't really be effective until you can reach some kind of immunity level. Otherwise, it'll spread among the most vulnerable people who maybe can't get vaccinated. I do think that it took a while, but then companies have become committed to this. But it is interesting that the, the ones that are most, um, you know, most advanced are really the two smaller biotech companies, Moderna and BioNTech, that have then partnered with larger companies to help manufacture the vaccines. I think we do have to keep in mind which, which companies have been very committed to COVAX and which are maybe not as committed at this point. But I, I do believe the companies are very committed now because they realize how, how serious this is and we need to, to roll out the vaccines. Who's making money from all of these vaccines? How much people are paying? That is a definitely a, a big question. And you know, we'll we'll see when we look back on this period. Um, what was really the right price? What what should we all have been paying? And could we have negotiated this at a global level? And uh, as opposed to by these individual countries trying to negotiate the best deal. What I'd like to do at this point, actually, is, is remind our listeners of the ideals behind Covax. Here's the WHO's. Dr. Mike Ryan. He said this just around Christmas time, I think, trying to appeal to people's uh, sense of generosity. So when we start distributing vaccines, when we say health workers are a priority, does that mean only some health workers? Or is that all health workers? We have some questions to ask ourselves over the holiday period. And when we talk about older and more vulnerable people, does that mean older and more vulnerable people in developed countries? Or is that older and more vulnerable people everywhere. Our deal, the deal we put to the world, was some people in all countries. And those some people are the ones at highest risk and the highest vulnerability and the highest risk of dying. And we have to make good on that. Now, Danny, here again, we get to um, politics and transparency, because although many countries have theoretically on paper committed to COVAX, their contracts, the wealthy countries with the pharma companies, are not transparent. We don't know how much these wealthy countries are paying per dose. What we do know is many of them, Switzerland is one, Israel, which has uh, managed to vaccinate faster than any other country on the planet, reportedly paid far higher. I mean, so what's the point of signing up to something so nice if you actually aren't going to practice what, what you preach? I think with the vaccines, we haven't had that kind of transparency, but I'm sure there are stories out there why certain cantons in Switzerland, why certain countries, why certain states, why certain regions are getting the vaccines quicker than others, and also the question of why they're being delivered, but they're not getting into people's arms. That's another problem of logistics. I think what we've been talking about the last few minutes, Julia, is, is what's being termed in Geneva and, and elsewhere vaccine nationalism. Yes, indeed. I mean, the WHO Director General has stressed right from the start that it's better to vaccinate 
Well, he actually says it's essential to vaccinate some people in all countries rather than all people in some countries. You know, there is also the risk that if all the companies that have viable vaccines do bilateral deals with rich countries, they won't have enough supply for the poor countries, even if the poor countries have the money. COVAX, the aim is to have 20% of the population vaccinated in all countries. Um, 20% would roughly cover all the people who are considered to be vulnerable, so the old, the chronically sick, and the health workers. And, and, you know, I mean, most healthy people recover from this thing. Some people don't even have symptoms. Yeah, that's right. So that 20% in every country on the planet would really get us a long way. Jessica, we've heard a lot about like Build Back Better and that this is this pandemic has absolutely shone a spotlight on what could be, some people argue, is a broken capitalist system. So say the WHO does reform, we've talked about more reform for it. I mean, what do you think, what would the pharma companies have said, well, in a pandemic, we're going to give the, the WHO the power to requisition vaccines, treatments and distribute them fairly? I mean, I think there are going to be a lot of lessons learned for the pharma industry. I mean, one is around research and development, you know, where they put their money. And if there isn't money in this, maybe we do need to actually rethink the entire pharma model. Um, And maybe it does mean collaboration with global organizations, with governments, with academics in a new way that can really channel money into the right places for the real priority public health. And of course, it's very difficult to say, you know, which is more important before an outbreak. You know, cancer is still a huge uh, health risk. So, I mean, it's 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 very difficult to, to weigh different public health challenges on an individual level and then on an overall public health level. Um, so that's very difficult. But I do think, you know, research and development, but there's a whole discussion that kind of maybe is underlying some of these is around the rights and who holds the rights to these drugs, vaccines and things like that. And I think this is where, you know, maybe there will be a new role for the WHO and really think thinking about making these more the people's vaccine, you know, public property in some way, and as opposed to having ownership. A lot of the pharma companies are really worried about the precedent that such a thing could set for innovation, whether it will really prompt companies to um, invest in innovation, but also how do they get a return on their investment. But I, I do you know, I, I hope that this is going to be kind of a reckoning in some way around public health crises and, and how we actually think about the development of the right drugs, vaccines and the delivery of them. Danny, yes, I see you have your hand up. Of course, the, the pharma company was shamed a bit with antiretrovirals, the treat, treatment for HIV AIDS. Yeah, but, but the but question they... is, I mean, before we used to talk about global security issues, nuclear weapons, terrorism, and all of a sudden global health now becomes an issue. Uh, the question is how we're going to deal with that issue. It has economic things, as Jessica has mentioned, with the pharma companies, but it also deals with uh, equality and distribution rights. Uh, and we have the same thing in economics, the haves and the have-nots. Is this now going to become a global health issue that's going to be dealt with? We haven't done well with global economics in distribution? Do we have basic incomes for certain people? Are we going to now move to having certain basic health systems for different countries where we haven't done it economically? Can we now do it? Because we see clearly 
that health is a global issue, that if something happens in China or some other countries, it has implications throughout the world. The question is, who's going to be in charge and how's it going to get done? I think that's a really good point uh, Danny made, and we are getting close to the end of the programme. And it brings me almost to my final question. We heard Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, with his New Year message, basically saying, again, we need to look at what we're doing. We need a reset, he said, which is a shorter word for build back better. Are we going to get there, Julia? I think you wanted to come in personally. I feel a bit cynical. What do you think? You know, personally, at the beginning, during the first confinement, I was quite kind of optimistic. I mean, I wouldn't say I was happy that we were confined or I was happy that the virus was there. It was a big shock. And like everybody else, I was kind of anxious, especially for the first few weeks. But it was sunny and we were going out onto our balconies and because everything had stopped, nature was just going bonkers. It was like everything was coming back. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is like the planet teaching us a lesson. And, you know, I was thinking, well, we just have to learn from this. All the planes were grounded. Wow. And You know, I mean, some people have joked that we may end up meeting the Paris climate targets, you know, despite ourselves because of the virus. Yeah, okay, you shake your head. Maybe it's like, you know, being too light. But seriously, I mean, do we really want to get back to, you know, planes whizzing us around, you know, every five minutes to another part of the globe? Is that the aim, to get back to that normal? We talk about a new normal, but we haven't defined new normal either. You know, I think there's perhaps room for some optimism, but um, we need to take this seriously. Well, honestly, I think if we're not taking it seriously now, my goodness, Um, because as you said, it was kind of fun, almost adventurous, the first lockdown, sunny and so on. And now it's bleak mid-winter. We're almost finished. I'm going to say to all our listeners, hang on in there, wherever you are. I do want to ask, though, Jessica and Danny, very short, anything, any predictions? Do you think we're, we're going to learn from this? One prediction. I've signed up for the vaccine, and I'm predicting that if and when I get it, I won't get sick, And I won't have medium or long-term consequences, but I'm not sure. I'm just hoping. I just keep thinking this is not a sprint. It's a marathon and trying to keep my endurance up through these tough, cold Swiss months, (laughs) winter months that we have here and thinking that the vaccine is coming. Hope is coming. We can have optimism, but it is going to take time. Yeah, I'll second that. I've had my own experiences of this virus this year. Both my sons have had it. They are both well. I've had to quarantine three times. Um, And yeah, as I said, hang on in there. And although I think I agree with Julia, we shouldn't be all whizzing around in planes every five minutes. I'm really hoping to see all of you, Jessica, Julia and Danny, at some point in 2021, not via virtual interview but in our studio in Geneva. On that note, thank you very much for taking part. Thank you to everyone for listening and take care over the next few weeks.
A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to a look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.